Approaching Zion. Gospel Mysteries, Episode 7. Episode 7. You'd think seven episodes in, we'd learn not to wait until midnight to record these podcasts. No, this is when... This is when the juices are flowing. This is when the spirit really comes out to play. <laughs> Starting at midnight, ending at 2 a.m. <laughs> well, you know, for me it is. That's my sweet spot, like between 10 and 2. That's, that's when your creative juices are really... Yeah. I'm an artist. I'm an artist. Okay, fair enough. Okay, episode 7. Today, we're going to be talking about grace. So... Uh, I've titled this episode Grace and Original Sin. And we'll see that those are linked concepts, actually. But, uh, you know, grace is a very, very popular Christian concept, the grace of Jesus Christ. It's something that the entire gospel is built around, the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, But it's something that, from a Latter-day Saint perspective, is kind of a a, a a thorny issue, yeah. Because we are often criticized by some of our evangelical brothers and sisters uh, that we do not understand grace, or that we focus too much on works and not enough on grace. So uh, I feel like there might be some apologetics coming out. <laughs> in this episode, what we just want to look at what really is grace? Why are there these misunderstood notions to our views and concepts of grace? Why does why does the uh, outside world looking in say we focus too much on works when you and I both know it's all grace? Yeah. Correct. We're all about grace and it's it is by grace that we are saved. So, we'll look at that uh, maybe do some comparison with uh, maybe traditional Christian concepts and definitions and views on grace versus greater understanding that we have through modern revelation, and uh, probably take a look at a lot of scriptures. Yeah, as well. I think the really the high level, kind of the root of what we want to get at, and and what we're going to do here is a lot of times the discussion on grace versus works or grace and works and how this discussion takes place between mainstream Christianity and LDS theology. The truth is it's a little too superficial, whereas we're going to take the approach of with our understanding of pre-mortal existence, pre-mortal truth, our time here in mortality and what we know is to come, with that foundation, it totally changes how grace should be applied and understood. And so we want to explain our position. We want to help help faithful members of the LDS faith understand grace and works and how they work in tandem together. But ultimately, you, you can't argue this from the premise of where mainstream Christianity starts from. Because we have deeper understanding and deeper truth, you've got to argue this concept and think about this concept internally based on truth and understanding that the restored gospel has brought to the world. And that's ultimately where we want to focus on today is it's not as it's not as simple as, well, you know, grace is important, but your works also matter. There's so much more to it than that. As you start right, you end right. And 
and, and I think since we have that additional truth, we have that background and we have knowledge that other Christian faiths don't have, we need to put grace and works in their proper place. And that's what we're going to try to do today. So let's talk about, uh, kind of set some definitions, some concepts of just about how how we view grace. And I think one of the most important things is that we view grace as empowerment. Grace is a divine gift that empowers us to be able to do good works. It empowers us to make good choices in our daily life that lead us back to the presence of the Father. It is it is an empowering agent that Christ provides to us. And it's not it's not just his favor. It's not just unmerited favor that Christ provides us, but it is it is it is a tool. It is a, a substance that we can take advantage of and with our agency to improve ourselves on the path back to the Father. And it's through Christ, it's through his atonement, but it is an enabling power. And it makes me think of Doctrine and Covenants 93, which says, If you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. So Christ was teaching, uh, in section 93, we learn about how Christ progressed back to the Father, how he was born into the earth as a man, lived a perfect life, kept the commandments, was who he was, and because of that, he qualified to return to the presence of the Father. Now, we're not him. <laughs> we can't do that on our own. Newsflash. <laughs> but his promise is, through him, as we keep the commandments, or more, maybe better way to say it, that as we become the type of person who lives according to the commandments, that brings the Spirit greater into our life. And by, by having experience day after day, living a higher way of living, living higher law, we receive grace for grace, or we grow in the Spirit through that grace that He provides. I think this is kind of an opportunity to set the stage of grace was not an accident, nor was it a backup plan because there was a fall or because sin entered the world. When we talk about grace being empowerment for us to grow grace for grace, you know, as the Savior did, we we need to understand that grace and the concept of grace and mercy was always at the forefront of the Father's plan for us. I think, I think we've said this in another episode. That is the plan. That is the plan. Yes, correct. The plan was not, I'm going to create these children starting with Adam and Eve and then they should live perfectly and obey every commandment perfectly. No, that was not the plan. The plan always was, I'm going to create these children. They will go through a mortal 
experience and will by necessity require grace and mercy. That was ordained and established from the beginning by the Father. And those who overcome Mm -hmm. the natural man through grace, through grace and through their own experiences and applying that grace, Mm -hmm. those who progress can keep that progression. Exactly right. And I mean, that's that's what the atonement is all about. And that's what the restored gospel is all about. That greater understanding of progression. That we are here to progress. God created and organized us so that we can progress. Each of us individually according to our own desires, our own agency. And that's what the atonement is all about. It's, it's uh, Moroni says, by his grace, we can be made perfect in him. We can be, we can be made perfect in Christ. And so through his grace, we can progress. We can become a little bit better and then a little bit better and then a little bit better. Grace for grace. Each one of those little bit betters implies repentance and and implies a learning process, overcoming the natural man, step by step by step, until we get as far as as we can get. And this implies ultimately what we're trying to do is receive a fullness of His grace, right? So, just just that statement of fullness of grace, or or receive a fullness of His grace, it it implies that as time goes by, as you grow grace for grace, that this actually expands within you and you receive a greater outpouring of it. It's not coincidental that, and it's not an accident that the first principle, what what everything the Father does is built upon is agency. And in order for agencies to exist, and we're going to talk about this a little more in depth, there must be a law in which agency, right and wrong, is established on. The Father knows all of this and obviously knows that law, that celestial law in which he lives, we as his children are not qualified yet to live that law perfectly. So he creates the law that grants us agency. And then through this mortal experience, grace is is effectualized to help us grow and receive. And as we receive a fullness of that grace, we come closer to him. We are able to enter into his presence and it, it physically changes who we are, what our desires are and where our heart truly lies. Right. And so these principles of agency being fundamental, it's something that must exist. God cannot, um, or, or will not force us or require us to be a certain way or to live a certain way. Agency must exist, and in order for agency to be, a law must exist, and in order for that law to, um, in order for us ultimately to get the most out of that law as limited beings currently, there must be grace that is is created and applied for us to grow greater and to become more like him. All of this was established before the world ever was. This was always part of the plan and not accidental. So implicit in the atonement and in grace are the first principles and ordinances of the gospel. 
and our understanding of faith is very important, right? Faith is belief, but it's not just belief, right? Faith is desire. It is experimentation on that desire. It is coming to greater hope of things to come and the promises and the blessings that are available to us. And then through further effort, uh, watering and nurturing that seed of, of desire, right, we can come to knowledge of spiritual things. Right? It's a process. We talked about this in the, in the doctrine of Christ. Faith is not just belief. It has principles of action behind that belief. And, uh, and that is why faith is necessary uh, as a necessary principle of the covenant path. Uh, which leads to eternal life, because we have to act on the faith that we have. We have to enter in by the way, is what, was it, is what Nephi says when he's talking about the doctrine of Christ. Entering is something you do. It's an action. You don't, if you just stand outside the gate, believing that if you were to go through, it would get you somewhere, not quite enough to get through the gate. You have to take the step and enter into the gate. So faith very important to understand that uh, Joseph Smith taught that in lectures on faith that faith is a principle of action. That's as clear as it needs to be. Faith is a principle of action. If you have faith, you do something about it. And if you want to have faith, you do something about it. And how do you ultimately, how do you know? And more importantly, how does the father know if you truly have faith? Now, the simple answer, the lazy answer would be, well, he knows everything. He knows if you have faith or not. Wrong. Because it doesn't, it's not enough for the Father to know that you have faith. You need to know that you have faith. So what does this mean? Well, again, we, we, we have always go back to the temple for so much of our understanding. But in the temple, we learn that as you receive truth, and you have faith in that truth, what is the process to, uh, how do you gauge that, that truth and your understanding your faith in that? Well, there are, there are tests, there are trials, there are temptations. There is something that, that you are going to be measured against to test that faith. And that test will ultimately necessitate good works, righteous efforts, righteous works. Is your heart in the right place? Are you actively doing what is necessary, right? In the temple, we learn this. You receive truth. That truth enters into your heart, right? This happened to Adam and Eve. It happens to us. We receive truth. Then messengers or the father step away for a moment. The tests occur. The trials occur. And then we have to prove faithful to that knowledge we've received, right? So, you know, as we as we continue to discuss this, faith in and of itself, as you said, as as the prophet Joseph said, it is an action. Why? Because in order to have true faith, you're going to, by necessity, go through trials. You're going to be tested on that faith, and that testing will require righteous actions on your part. You have to act affirmatively to uh, to demonstrate and to illustrate that yes, I am. Uh, devout, I am true to what I say I believe, right? Belief on its own is not enough. You must act according to it. That's what the Father's looking to validate within us. 
And it starts as just trying to do it. Mm. We all go, we all, we all have to kind of start by going through the motions a little bit and experimenting on the higher truths that we're, we're, we're receiving. But the natural consequence of faith is repentance. Faith, the good works that come from true faith is a repentant heart, is a repentant lifestyle. It's realizing you were wrong and then acquiring this spiritual strength to forsake that sin. And then you have true repentance. So grace is very closely tied to faith and the principle of repentance. And of course, the ability to repent in and of itself is, is grace is grace offered us by the atonement and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But we have to have that desire. We have that desire to come unto Christ. We have the desire to change. And then as we develop our faith in Christ, we actually do. We become better people. And then his grace, we can actually use his grace. We can use his forgiveness to then come again to the Father come closer to the Father's presence, come closer to the Father as a better person. And those sins are no more. They, they've been forgiven. We have repented of them. The grace of Christ covers us. And that's the beauty. That's the grace that Christ gives us. We can be forgiven. And even though you know, we're ashamed of what we've done and who we are, we don't have to be through repentance. And Doctrine and Covenants 137.9 Let's us know that says, for I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desire of their hearts. So what, what we do is important, right? There is a book of life. What we do is recorded in, in heaven. But that's not the only factor because we have grace. There is mercy. There is a redeemer. So we'll be judged according to our works but according to the desire of our hearts as well. So we're not perfect. Probably won't be perfect <laughs> by, the time, by the time we're being judged, but the desire of our hearts can be perfect. Yeah. We, that is one thing we have absolute control over, the desire of our hearts. That's, the, that's in its most pure form. That is the agency that we have is what are we setting our sights on? In what direction are we going towards? Are we going towards Christ or are we going away from him? That we we all have the ability to set our sights in a direction and be moving in a direction. And we have to have a desire in our hearts. This is this is kind of like the people with King Benjamin where they all pitched their tents towards the temple, right? Very symbolic of they knew which way they need to be looking. They knew where their hearts I like should that. be focused, right? Now, that doesn't mean they were going to do everything perfectly. They weren't going to live perfectly, but they knew the the way in which eternal life was to be had, right? And their hearts were being oriented towards that. Yes, it, and they wanted to make a covenant as a public witness or a yeah. declaration of that desire. Yeah. That's baptism. Exactly right. That is baptism, and that's when we make covenants in the temple. It's It's in front of witnesses. It's all about making manifest and 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 known to to God and to angels and to witnesses on this earth that we have a desire to return to the presence of God. We have a desire 
to apply the grace of Christ over us to be able to return to the presence of God. I, I've just I've had this thought come to me. I'm going to try to explain this, but this might end up going horrible. So help me with this. But when we talk about growing grace for grace, and you know, kind of our 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 works or the righteous desires of our heart being a factor in that. What does that mean? Because we say that sometimes, but sometimes we say it and people don't really um, internalize. Like, what does that mean to grow grace for grace? What does this actually do for us? So I, I want to give an example here so people can start to visualize this in their mind. When I was young, when I was a, a, a teenager, almost into my 20s, I actively went out and did things I knew were wrong. I was not an active member of the church. I liked the church, but didn't really know how to, to live it very well. And because of that, I, I justified going out and making poor choices, right? I was actively doing things that deep down I knew was wrong. And I felt bad about it a lot of times, but I wasn't willing to change up to that point. And then as I got older and a little bit wiser and, and a little bit smarter and realized... Debatable. Yeah. <laughs> fair. As I as I progressed slightly, ever so slightly, and started to really understand and learn what my agency is meant for, what the atonement really can do for me, and then how, what a blessing repentance is and the re repentance lifestyle is, my, my actions... And who I was changed from, okay, I don't want to actively do wrong things anymore to now I'm going to try to do right things, but because of the patterns and the habits I've established, I'm still going to mess up and make, make some really bad choices, you know, and that happened for a time. But as I continue to work through that repentance cycle, then I grew into a place where, okay, now I'm actually living pretty righteously or at a minimum abstaining from doing overtly bad things. And, and as I continue to grow and study and learn why are the commandments given, why is righteous living so important? Then my heart started to change to where, okay, now I started to love the commandments. I started to love what the Lord was trying to get me to do. And now it's, it's gotten to a point where a lot of times when I, when I'm, when I miss the mark, the real definition of sinning, it's because I might truly be having a good desire. I want to do something right, but I don't listen to the spirit close enough. And, and I try to do it my way. I go out with my will and say, Hey, this is a really good idea. I'm going to go ahead and execute on it. And I'm not really ensuring that my way of executing on it is in alignment with and according to the will of, of the fathers. Well, I'm not totally surrendering. So I still have a little bit of that pride within me, but in general, my heart's in the right place. I am trying to do the right things and righteous things, but I'm, I have not done what the savior did where he perfectly aligned his will with the father. I still have that pride within me that says, well, I want to do it my way, you know, mm -hmm. even if it's a righteous desire. But there's clearly been a progression in my life where there's been a, a grace for grace path forward going from outright evil choices to, 
hey, I'm going to live righteously, even if I don't fully understand it, to, okay, I love the commandments now, I understand why they're given, to now I actively do mostly everything I can to live righteously, but I'm still working on really aligning my will more perfectly with his, right? So there's a real grace for grace path forward, and that's ultimately what all of us have to do and continue to do moving forward with what does it mean to grow grace for grace? Your heart truly does change and your desires truly do change associated to it. Well, I think that is, that's a, that's representative of advancing in degrees of glory. And that's what the example of the life of Jesus Christ showed us that man, even though by nature, right, we can be weak, but we are capable of higher glory in life. And Christ showed us that higher glory is associated with higher laws and living those laws. And his grace allows us the the mechanism of learning to live those laws and not being held responsible for all the mess-ups along the way. Yep. And as we learn to live higher laws, we receive higher glory. And all that means is we become better people. We become more like the Father. And it's not just one and done. You don't just go from outer darkness to celestial. Yeah. (laughs) Like in, oh, I learned how to live a law, therefore I'm saved. No. You learn one little law at a time over and over and over and over again, and we progress in glory. Okay, the celestial kingdom is, the the metaphor is it's like the stars because no two stars are alike. So there are stars with a little bit of light and there are stars with a lot of light. There are small stars and big stars. So that kind of is representative. There's a lot of points to the law. And we kind of have to learn little by little to live a lifestyle that is consistent with all those points of the law. And at first, it's difficult. Some points of the law you have to you have to be taught. You know, it's not it's not always obvious. You have to kind of grow into it. But there reaches a point. This is what this is another thing that Christ showed us and taught is that there reaches a point where you have to get beyond that. It's not about living the law for the law's sake. It's about becoming. Elder Bednar talks a lot about this. It's about becoming someone better. And that is the law of the gospel. That's what Christ was trying to teach the Pharisees so much. It's not about the checklist of the law. It's about becoming someone who who lives the law you would live the law if you did, even if you didn't even know that the law existed, just because that's who you are. You are a person who is consistent with the Holy Spirit. That's just who you are. That's how Christ lives, lived his life. He didn't go day by day with the checklist of got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. I mean, and that's why he was so frustrated with all those extra rules that the Pharisees had added on to the law because it wasn't consistent with the kind of person that God is. Yeah. It wasn't pointing the people the right direction. It wasn't, it wasn't actually teaching them what the law originally it was, was trying it to harder. Teach them. Yes. It was making it more difficult to love the law 
to to have your heart fully invested in the law. And and this, frankly, is a warning. Well, it was a stumbling block to charity. Exactly right. And this is actually a, a warning for members of our faith today. And it, and it gets back to exactly what you were just talking about, the checklist mentality of, am I doing everything? Stop worrying about if you're doing everything, thinking, speaking of grace and works, thinking that doing everything, checking all those boxes is going to earn your way into celestial glory. It's wrong. It's the wrong perspective. Start focusing on, do I love the laws that I understand today? Do I love the commandments that God has given that I understand today? If you do, and 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 if you truly, if your heart is truly in the right place, and you truly do love those laws you understand today, you will live them. And as you live them, you will understand deeper laws, deeper meanings to the laws. You will you will receive greater truth, greater light, and you will continue to grow grace for grace, right? That's exactly what happens. But so long as your mentality is checklist mentality, am I doing everything that's on the checklist today and you're not really doing it out of love for the law, then your heart is is it's limited. You, you can only go so far with it. Sister Wright, uh, in general conference, the first session of, of conference, she talks about uh, the fact that we need to simplify our lives. We need to stop adding more boxes to the checklist, and we need to simplify our lives and focus on the light of Christ. And she says we, we need to use, we need to be a magnifying glass that can focus the light of Christ in our lives. And that's the attitude. That's the correct approach. That we need to take a step back and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, um, take a step back, assess what's going on in your life. And when you can take that just quick second to breathe and be self-aware, then it generally becomes very clear that this is what actually matters. I'm going to focus on this one thing that is whatever it is in, in your situation and in your life that you can focus on. And I mean, generally, that's really just service. And so you take a step back, you remove yourself, right, all your woes and concerns for, for a second. And all of a sudden, you can be a little more self-aware that I can be doing good right now. Yeah, I've got a whole bunch of problems to deal with, most of which are myself. <laughs> but, okay, I... Despite that, I can be doing good. I can be blessing the lives of other people. I can be serving, right? I think that's another aspect of growing grace for grace is that as we offer grace to others, that's the truest way to actually align ourselves with the Father and with Jesus Christ is doing what he did, living how he lived. And apart from just living the law and being a good person, he proactively was being charitable and loving and serving others. And I feel like that's how you focus that light. And that's how you really, that's how you can really become someone better and naturally align with the law without necessarily having to focus on the law. It's just like the Father loves us. And so grace is a natural outgrowth of that. That's why it was originally part of the plan because he knew we would need it. So too should we in our lives 
as we truly have love in our heart and we allow that to be kind of the, the guiding principle of our life, we're naturally predisposed to offer grace to others in our life, right? To offer that mercy and that and that charity and, and, and love to others. And that's ultimately what we need to be doing as well. Just like because of the love of the Father, grace is always at the forefront of everything he's doing. It's really how we need to be structuring our life as well. As we love him, as we love his law, we will naturally, an outgrowth of that, will will naturally be to have grace constantly in who we are and what we're doing and how we interact with other people. So we put together um, some topics here, some different aspects of grace, and we want to just do a little compare and contrast um, about kind of mainstream Christian views of some aspects around around grace and how Latter-day Saint theology thinks about grace. Now, this is a hard thing to do because there's a lot of different Christian denominations that all have different points, you know, different opinions and different doctrines on things. So inevitably, you know, something that we're talking about here is probably not going to align with somebody's <laughs> personal views on it. Personal views on things. Yeah. But we kind of did our best to generalize. And uh, I, I think it's going to be very interesting subject matter here. But the biggest and most important aspect, doctrinal aspect, um, to understand is original sin. Our views on grace are completely driven by our views on original sin. And that, I think, if, if we had to like boil it down, that in itself explains the difference between kind of mainstream Christian definitions and views on grace versus Latter-day Saint views on grace. It's that our understanding of the fall and original sin are very different. Yeah. And if you view original sin differently, well, then the purpose of grace is going to be different. Yeah. And the kind of the traditional Christian narrative is that we inherit Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin. They sin, and therefore mankind is born Sinful. in sin. Yep. And that original sin causes individual spiritual corruption and depravity just by nature of being human. Yeah. And by because of this, we deserve any and all terrible, awful things that, that come our way be, because of our sinful, depraved nature. Right, of, because of from the day we're born, we're, we're sinful. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, that's, that's the whole, that, that drives the whole controversial issue of infant baptism. That, oh, we got to get that sin off those, those babies. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which the Book of Mormon just. Flat know, out refutes. <laughs> flat out refutes. It says, no, we are not born w- with sin. We are born innocent. innocent. Yep. And until we become uh, conscious enough to be accountable for our own actions. Back to agency. First principle. Until we yep. develop to a point of having agency, there is no sin. We are not born. We are born innocent. And that is the approach that we take. Is that there's not original sin. Uh, because of the fall, we are born into mortality and have agency with which we can and ultimately do sin. Mm-hmm. But we were not born that way. Yeah. And it's not the default that 
uh, we deserve all these consequences of the sin that is in the world. And um, there's, um, what's the name of the book? Original Grace. Original Grace. Yeah. Uh, what, do you remember the author's name? Oh, let me look it up because I want to give him credit. Hold on one second. Yeah, we were we were discussing some concepts that is it Adam Miller. That rings a bell. Apparently, he lives right down the road. Yeah, he's in McKinney, I think. <laughs> but uh, I really like that term, original grace. His his whole uh, thesis in 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 the book is that we don't believe in original sin; we believe in original grace, meaning that the plan of salvation was laid before the foundation of the world. Right? Before the world was created, there was already a plan that provided grace. The plan is grace. Yeah. God created the world in Adam and Eve so that they could take advantage of grace. So obviously, there was going to be a fall. Obviously, that wasn't an accident. It was actually something necessary. You could even say something good that had to happen yeah so that we could be here today experiencing what we're experiencing to be able to take advantage of that grace that was available and promised before the world was even created and that's a huge hugely different mm. right uh, uh the stance you know original sin or versus original grace yeah I, it's we take the approach that Eve partaking of the fruit and that symbolic gesture of I'm willing to fall so that man might be, it it was not, um, although ultimately that would lead from, that would lead Adam and Eve to be physically disassociated from the presence of the father it was a necessity in order for man to become, for man to be, right? It was ultimately a good outcome because of our need to come and gain a mortal existence, right? So Eve taking partaking of the fruit, she's not to blame for anything. In fact, her righteous desire to bring life into the world is ultimately which helped lead her to make that decision and be willing to fall from the presence of the Father so that we might be. And, I mean, we see, so so God said he gives them a law, do not partake of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Then he says, nevertheless, you may choose, mm -hmm. basically saying, I'm aware that there's going to be consequences of doing this. Um, which will involve you temporarily moving away from my presence as you work through those consequences, as you gain that experience of evil and then hopefully reject it with your own capabilities, your own agency. And we see that agency is given to us so that our sins are our own. We are each Adam and Eve having the choice to partake of that fruit or not. And hopefully, when we taste the bitter fruit, 
we reject it mm-hmm. and go the opposite direction. And um, it's interesting because, I mean, it's, it's so important because if we're not responsible for our own sins, right, if that's Adam and Eve's fault that we're sinning, I mean, we, we have no obligation to repent and seek to progress. For why? Yeah, the the idea that our sins fall upon the head or the heads of Adam and Eve as our first parents, ultimately, that that idea in and of itself destroys the whole purpose and the whole point of why the Father created this plan in the first place. If that were true then there is zero point to us being here. There's zero reason for us being here because ultimately we are not accountable. We can't on the one hand say, you know, um, to enter into the presence of the father, I, I have done what is necessary and accepted what is necessary and, and applied the grace being offered me sufficiently to return to your presence um, if in, in the first place, we were never to be accountable for the sins that we are born into, right? It just, it completely, ultimately it completely gets rid of agency. It destroys that principle. And that is so fundamental to all that God does is you must have agency. Now we can't be too critical because so much of our understanding is because of the restoration because of truth that has been brought back to the world that has been lost, right? But this understanding for mainstream Christianity, it it is so difficult for them to make sense of what has happened with sin entering the world, with the fall, with, with the whole story of Adam and Eve. When you don't understand that agency is so fundamental you can automatically assume like, oh, well, all of our sins are because of Adam and Eve. They trace back to that. We're born into sin and it, you know, that's just the way it is. Well, no, that can't be the case because agency is so fundamental to everything that we do as children of a, of a loving God. And it clearly teaches that this life is about the opportunity to progress, to learn to discern good and evil and choose good. Use our agency to choose good and to progress. And then continue with that progression in the hereafter. To be able to continue to grow, continue to take advantage of that progression we have attained to. Right? There are there is a purpose for us in the eternities, in the next life. And all the intelligence and all the experience we gain here will be of use to us, right? We need to seek to progress, to become better, to become more like Christ. It's important, not just for our happiness now, it's important for the plan that God has for us after this life. It's important for our future eternities. And that's why you have to understand that it's all built upon redemption. It's all built upon grace because it's through redemption, it's through grace that we progress. It's all about progression. Grace 
is our is an enabling power. Mm-hmm. That's what we said. Grace is our ability to progress. Yep. And in order to progress, there must be law, there must be opposition, there must be discernment of good and evil, there must be agency to choose to do good. Yeah. And that is how we progress. And if you look at if you if you look at theology from a mainstream Christian perspective where we live this life, we die, and then what do we hope for? We hope to go to heaven and whatever it is that we're doing, we just we're just going to be there with God and that's it. It makes sense if you if you think of eternity that way where hey, you just need accept Christ you're saved by grace, and now you can enter in. You just got to get there. Heaven. You just got to get there, right? That's not our theology. Our theology is, and and this is very clear, that there are eternities, that this is a process we're going through. It is not get to this point in the sand where you've accepted Christ, so now you can just return. And, One and done. Yeah, that, that is just, that's not our theology. Our theology is this progression, this process, this journey that we're going on to be as Christ is, ultimately to be as the Father is, to be one in in Christ as Christ is in the Father. That is a process. That is going to take time. We talk about in the church eternity to eternity, one eternal round. What does this mean? Well, nobody has a perfect understanding of all of those things, but we do know that through grace, coupled with the righteous desires of our heart and righteous living with those desires, righteous works with those desires, that this process of progression is forever happening. It's constantly and eternally happening, right? It's not just get to just cross this line and you're good. You don't have to worry anymore. Like, no, this is a journey that we are on. It is a process that is ever happening. You don't just cross a threshold and then you don't have to worry anymore. To put it another way, right? The, we're saying there's kind of this mainstream Christian thought that was, well, if you could just get to heaven, mm-hmm. that's the finish line. Yeah. You just got to get there. We say... The grace of Christ actually brings all of us back to the presence of God already. Yeah. We are all going to be brought to the presence of God to be judged mm. according to our works, according to the desires of our hearts. Our theology is we need to progress in our ability to remain in the presence of God once we have been brought back to his presence through the atonement of, and grace of Jesus Christ. If we are brought back into the Garden of Eden, where we can walk with the Father, we have to learn to remain in that garden without partaking of that fruit. Yeah. That's the whole, the whole point was they were expelled. Why? So that they could get back and not do it again, not make the same, not be separated from the presence of the Have Father. Have a greater awareness and a greater... Uh, greater experience and capability mm-hmm. to say, I'm not. I know the bitter. I understand the consequences of partaking of the bitter fruit. I ain't doing that again. And I'm not going to do it again. <laughs> right. That's the point, right? Is 
because of this life, what is the purpose of it? Learn to differentiate between the good, the sweet, and the bitter. Mm -hmm. And as you, through righteous desires, as you live righteously, as your works, which are fruits of your righteous desires, as your works are righteous, you learn to abstain from the bitter and move towards and work towards the sweet. And that is ultimately when the time comes, that is ultimately how you remain in the presence of, of the father. Adam and Eve were in the presence of the father. And what happened there? They couldn't stay there. Inability to live righteously. Well, their inability to consistently and always choose the sweet or the righteous fruit force them to go through a mortal existence where, okay, now you're going to have the opportunity to taste both and, uh, and grace will be applied through Christ. And, and we know that they, they discerned that there was more growth available for yes, them. That's correct. Right. They discerned that they discerned that this was a process. They didn't have to partake of that fruit, but for them and their situation to progress required it. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so they did. And now we find ourselves in the same situation where we get to learn in advance of being in the presence of God the same lesson. Yeah. And when we get back to the presence of God, we don't necessarily have to go through or make the same mistakes that other people have made. Or you don't you don't have to make every mistake to to learn the lesson, right? You can learn from other people's mistakes to learn a lesson, right? You don't have to sin to learn the consequences of sin. In this life, we get experience through our own sins, but also through observing observing others, the yeah. world and, and, and the wickedness that is in the world. Day by day, we're just becoming more prepared to not just get to the presence of God, but remain in the presence of God when we get there, to be comfortable in the presence of God. And... um. I mean, that, that really is the difference of, you know, we, Latter-day Saint theology brings in this concept of exaltation, which is a, a higher form of just salvation. Um, generally in mainstream Christian thought, it's just salvation. You're saved. Um, in Latter-day Saint thought, we have salvation, but we also have exaltation. So we, we generally think of salvation as physical salvation yeah, or the atonement of Christ bringing us back, resurrection, mm-hmm. having a perfect body and bringing back into the presence of God. But exaltation is our ability to remain there and to continue to progress in the presence of God. And to continue to grow grace to grace. I mean, right? we continue so the process. So if all you're wanting is that physical salvation, I just want to get back to the presence of God, maybe with a better body and with less temptation. Mm-hmm. We definitely need that. Yeah. And step one. And our and our stance is that is a hundred percent provided free of charge mm-hmm. through the grace of Jesus Christ, regardless of who you are and how you live your life. Right? Regard you don't even if you do not accept Christ, you will be resurrected and brought back to the presence of God to be judged. To be judged, yep. So exaltation, right, then is something beyond that where 
how much have you actually accepted Christ in your life and then taken advantage of the gospel? Yeah. How much have you become like, like him? Yep. And how much, how capable are you to continue in the presence of God in the eternities? And, you know, that's a big, big part of exaltation and what we define as exaltation. And, and of course, it's not just doing that individually, but learning to do that in family units and having that ability to grow together to continue God's plan in, in the future. I wanted to talk a little bit about, we kind of hinted on this concept of, of Christ covering our sins and our ability to be returned back to the presence of the Father without shame. And uh, you had wanted to talk a little bit about the symbolism in in the Garden of Eden and the fall and what Jehovah offered Adam and Eve. Yes, yeah, so we we learn and we read in the story of, of Adam and Eve when they partake of the fruit, they recognize their nakedness or they they recognize their you know their weakness all of a sudden their sin and what do they do well they they create for themselves a covering essentially out of fig leaves and then when the father returns does he ultimately well they hide themselves from him well they correct not only do they create coverings out of fig leaves, but then they hide themselves. And then the father returns and discovers them. And there's a series of, of questions back and forth. I like uh, the father. I saw a video of Elder Bednar talking about this. And he said, <laughs> he said, when God came down, you know, Adam, where are, you know, where art thou? He's, he, he kind of, he's, it was a kind of a casual environment, but he, he said, he said it was more like Adam, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> Why are you hiding from me? <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> but he said it like that. It was very much like a father and I, like a child. I was just like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> and the interesting thing, though, is when when Adam and Eve come out and start addressing the father, as they stop hiding, stop trying to cover up, you know, their their weaknesses, and as they fully expose themselves to the Father, does he flat out reject the fig leaves that they've made for themselves? No, but he instantly offers and implements grace. What, am I, what do I mean by that? He understands and recognizes what they tried to do on their own. You sinned, you made a mistake, and based on your understanding, you try to cover your nakedness. It's not adequate. It's not enough. He recognizes their awareness. Yes. Yes. They were aware that they had messed up, that they had made a mistake. But their efforts were not fully lost on the Father. He understood that the fig leaves was their limited ability to say, I know I screwed up and I'm trying to make the best of the situation as I can right now. And the father doesn't flat out reject that, but immediately gives them grace and has Jehovah go and make 
the coat of skins, makes coverings for them. Well, what hap- What he does is he immediately institutes the law of sacrifice. Yep. Which, again, was planned before the foundation of the earth that a savior would be provided. He institutes the law of sacrifice. So long as they were willing to abide that law. Death is brought into the world yeah. through their choices. Yep. Right? And if you read in between the lines, you realize that the first animal sacrifice was the Lord who made it. Yeah. Because the Lord made clothes out of animal skins mm-hmm. for Adam and Eve. Yep. So there was a very you could just put yourself in in the shoes of Adam and Eve. You can they they broke the rule, they transgressed, and then just look at that Imagine that visual symbolism of here's the consequence of your transgression. It's blood. Yeah. It's death. Death now entering the world. Okay. Yeah. Now, with that very, very strong visual representation, you also have the teaching that, however, through blood and sacrifice, you can be covered that shame and nakedness of sin, the consequence of sin, can be covered through some sacrifice that is not your own. Mm-hmm. And that came directly from God. Yeah. Animal sacrifice instituted in the days of Adam and Eve to Adam and Eve, right? That makes it very clear that the law of sacrifice, that a Savior would be provided. That is the plan. Yeah. That was the plan. It was prepared to be the plan. And it's not something that, right, the whole law and animals, it's not something that came about with Moses. No, it, starting with Adam and Eve, that is when the law of sacrifice was instituted, which pointed straight to Jesus Christ, that God himself would offer himself as sacrifice so that we can continue progress, so that Adam and Eve, so that man may progress and overcome sin and take advantage of our progression despite sin. And it it goes to just show and to prove, once again, that grace wasn't the backup plan. It wasn't, well, they messed up, what are we going to do now? It was, no, this, this was always the plan. There, you know, the Lord sees it all from beginning to end and obviously knew that this was going to be happened and would necessitate grace. And that grace is eternal. It's never going to be something that goes away. We will, grace will always be part of progression throughout eternities is something that will always have to be applied in one form or another. And I love the... What I love most about that whole story is that the Lord gave garments to Adam and Eve to hide their nakedness. And even though they were still the same people they were when they transgressed, their shame was covered and they could now stand in the presence of God without shame. That is the most beautiful imagery and symbolism I think that there is is that 
through the law of sacrifice, through Jesus Christ and his grace, we can actually stand in the presence of God even though we have not yet progressed to the point where he would have us progress to, to truly be there. Right? We can partake of his presence time and time again by virtue of repentance, by virtue of the sacrifice of Christ, we can, we can enter into his presence and partake of the glory that he has, partake of, of, of revelation from him through the veil. We can, we can come to him in prayer through the veil and receive from him without shame. Right? We can, we can, we can, we can come with boldness to the throne of grace to make our petitions. Yeah. Right? We have the capability to present ourselves before him without shame, even though we are sinful or have sinned. And that's just, that is so, so key and critical to living the gospel. If you think, oh, I've sinned, I'm not worthy to approach God, you do not understand the law of sacrifice and the grace of Christ that has been provided to you. The grace of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the law of sacrifice provides us with that covering to be able to present ourselves before the Father and make those petitions and to truly bring that Spirit of God into our life so that we can progress more and more and then maintain ourselves in the presence of God more constantly. That's the plan. That's what grace provides us. Progression towards right, having access to, to the presence of God right in moments, but then eventually having continual access or actually abiding in the presence of God at all times. It's, interest, it's interesting that you say that because I was just thinking how so much of the story of, of Adam and Eve and their interaction with the Father is not dependent on the Father's perspective, but is actually dependent on their perspective. Before partaking of the fruit, Adam and Eve were just as naked in the presence of, of the Father as, as they were after. And they had no problem. They had no issue standing in the presence of the Father. And he had no issue. Him, and he had no issue with it. And yet they were naked, you know. But their perspective was not, I'm limited, I'm weak, I, I, I'm not this man. You know, I'm, I'm not on the same level as, as the Father. But yet everyone was happy to continue learning from, discussing, talking yeah. to one another. The sin corrupted the view they had of themselves. Yes. And our understanding of who they yes. were. That's, and, and, and if there's something that, not to be critical, but if there's something that makes me sad about some perspectives mainstream Christianity has about human beings, is that their default position is, we're not worthy. We're not, you know, we're we're not in any way adequate. We're so fallen. We're so depraved that it, it's almost as if you know the father is this kind of Greek god figure that just you know has has kind of randomly chooses who to send trials to, who not to, who to offer grace to, who not to. And, and I know that's an oversimplification, but it really warps the nature of God. 
Whereas, well, and our relationship with and our relationship to God. Whereas the story of Adam and Eve actually shows that God was willing to be in the presence of Adam and Eve. And even when they partake of the fruit, who was it that hid themselves? It wasn't God. God had left already. He had gone away for a time, right? That had nothing to do with them partaking of the fruit. But when they partake of the fruit, they hid themselves. Their perspective was changed on their relationship to God. But God came back down knowing... It didn't prevent him from coming back. He came back knowing they had partaken of the fruit. He was not ignorant to that fact and was seeking them out, wanted to be in their presence, right? But their perspective now had been altered, had been warped, had been adjusted. And what we see in the restoration of the gospel is this realignment to start understanding our nature and our ability, the the celestial person within us that we are looking to kind of let out of the box, so to speak, that when Christ, through his grace, covers your sins, you can, exactly as you said, when you have a proper understanding of what grace does for you, that yes, I'm not perfect in the flesh, but through the grace of Christ, he covers those sins so that I can walk into the presence of the Father perfectly, not on my own accord, not through my works 100%, but through the grace of Christ. And I can plead at the throne of grace to, you know, for, for whatever it is that I'm in search of, whatever I'm, I'm, I'm looking for, whatever intelligence and light I'm seeking to receive, right? And so ultimately, the perspective of Adam and Eve, which, is, which, uh, which was damaged by their sin, is really the problem. God wanted to be in their presence regardless, but their perspective prevented them from being in the presence of the Father. And that's that's what we're looking to change is that understanding of who we are and who we're meant to be. And the truth is, we are children of God. And we're not just one of God's creations. We are his children, and he is our Father. And that perspective alone should make the plan very clear as to why we are here. To understand who you are in relationship to God, then you can truly understand where we're looking to go. It's progression. Jesus Christ showed us the way, and now we can walk the path that he walked and progress in the way that he showed us to progress. And we can become like him, and we can become like the Father, through the power of grace, through the power of redemption. There is no progression without redemption, and there's no redemption without grace. It's all part of the plan. You could go the other way. Because there is grace, there is redemption, and because there is redemption, there is progression. That is the purpose of our life. That is the purpose of this creation and this existence. We, God wants us to progress and become more and more like him in this life and in the next. That is the plan. And closing, closing, following up on that, closing the circle, closing the loop on the story of Adam and Eve. After the, the 
coats of skins were made for Adam and Eve through the law of sacrifice, that grace that is being applied to them, you might ask the question, well, if that grace is being applied to them, were they not immediately worthy to remain in the presence of of the Father? But what we see is, why does the Father, again, this is grace being applied to them, why does the Father kick them out of the garden? Because they must learn for themselves to decipher and, and to choose the good over the bad, the sweet over the bitter, right? There must be this time now of testing. We talked about that earlier in this podcast. You must be tested and go through that process. Yeah, now that the plan was effectualized, yes. they were in a prime position to take full advantage of it, yep. to actually have a mortal probation, a lifetime of experience, to grow and grow and grow and progress and progress as much as possible. Yep. And we, we see that the, the coat of skins, the grace being offered them, they already had that grace applied to them, but they still had to go out and perform certain works. They did have to do certain things. It's not, is well, it grace or is it works? It's both. The grace enabled them to have experience and to do the best that they can do. Yes. Yep. All that they can do. Yep. To progress, mm-hmm. right? It enabled them to improve through their own efforts, mm-hmm. even though when it's all said and done, it's all the grace of Christ yep. that seals that progress upon them. It it starts and it ends with the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ, period, end of story. But in the middle there, there is that time of testing where we will be offered fruit, the temptations of the world. And the repentance process in that middle ground is consistently in effect, again, through the grace of Christ. And as we repent consistently, as we learn to live a repentant lifestyle, we learn to abstain from the bitter. Our works do matter. They do, they they are part of the calculus in the long run, but always with this overlay, this, this consistent um, a, amount of grace given through the merits of Jesus Christ, you know, so that it's not as if grace was applied to Adam and Eve. So now they can just go ahead and return and go back to the father. No, that wasn't the case. The father knows what we need, what to progress, to progress like him. And that required a, a, a season of testing Mm -hmm. and, and a season of repentance. And that's what Adam and Eve did. They went out and they were tested and they learn to decipher good from evil, and they learn to live a repentant lifestyle. And at the end of their days, the grace of Jesus Christ was more fully manifested in their life so that they could return and live with the Father and continue to progress to Him. There's no progression without redemption. Once His grace covers your sins, then your works have value in the eyes of God. Then you can present yourself and say, this is my offering. This is what I'm able to do on my own. This is how I've progressed. And because your sins are covered, all you are, all you have to bring back to the presence of God on the day of judgment is the good that you've done. Yeah, the that, is your, that is your offering. That is your sacrifice. That is your uh, 
that's that's what you're bringing to to that that altar mm-hmm. to present to God. And yes, if there was no atoning sacrifice, if there was no savior, if there was no grace, it wouldn't matter. Mm-hmm. You have we don't have we don't have that power in and of ourselves, and it would all be for naught. But because there is grace, our works have merit. Our works have value. And regardless of how much good and how much progression each of us individually are able to do, it's accepted. The Lord accepts our offering regardless of how great or how small it is because of the grace of Christ. And then when we are resurrected, right, that good, that progress that we've made is can be sealed upon us and we can continue in the eternities with the progression we've obtained. And that is how, right, from eternity to eternity, from exaltation to exaltation, that is how we can continue, right, in this doctrine of eternal lives to always be progressing towards the image of God uh, eternally. That's that's the plan. The, the righteous works, the righteous deeds, the righteous desires of our heart this is ultimately, as we act upon these things, it brings greater light into our lives. As we love others, as we offer and give charity, as we serve more, this increases the light and the truth in our lives. And so we talk about, you know, in the temple, going to receive further light and knowledge, right? There is definitely a literal application of that. But how else do we receive further light and knowledge? It's by taking the grace offered to us and living righteously, performing righteous works as the Savior did so that we can then also increase our light, our knowledge, our intelligence. And that is what you take with you on the other side. So why do works matter? Because righteous works increase the the light, the truth, the intelligence you have, and that will not be taken from you. Just as you said, that is something that you will continue to move forward and progress with. So take the grace being offered to you. Live righteously. Do good things. Um, um, make righteous choices. Let righteous works be the fruit of, of, of the grace and the righteous desires of your heart so that that light accumulates within you and that you do take with you on the other side. And as you said, as Christ covers the sins, all that remains in this simple equation is the righteous light and truth you acquired in this life. So for the last part of the episode, we have a handful of scriptures that I think further emphasizes some of these concepts and, um, you know, the relationship between grace and, and our works. And I, I think we can just kind of go through and do a little bit of a scripture study here on some of those. So let's start in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So clearly saying, we cannot save ourselves, and our works do not save us. We are saved through our faith. Now, obviously, faith produces repentance, 
and turns us into someone who does good works. But by grace we are saved through faith. It's the gift of God. So he says, not of works, lest any man should boast. But then he goes down here and he starts talking about, it gets a little, gets a little confusing if you don't have the concept, context here. But he starts talking about, wherefore remember that ye being in times past Gentiles, who are called uncircumcised, by that which is called the circumcision of flesh by hands, that at the time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, without God in the world. So just clearly showing that, I mean, when, when he's talking about circumcision, right, that is the token of the Abrahamic covenant. covenant. Yep. Okay, so he, uh, Paul here is, is, is talking to, to Gentiles saying, you weren't born in the covenant. You didn't have the birthright of these promises, right? But through the atonement of Christ, that covenant those promises, right, through baptism, even the Gentiles can be brought into the house of Israel and have access to to that grace and and to uh, to all of those promises that are available. Then if we hop over to Second Nephi twenty five, we get a very famous verse here in the Book of Mormon. We labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and our brethren to believe in Christ, to be reconciled to God. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. So there's that There's that famous, it's by grace we are saved after all we can do. So this is sometimes over-quoted, yeah, I think. Sure. Uh, they even quote this in the temple now. But the danger here is to say it's by grace we are saved, and then to raise your finger and go, after all you can do. Yeah. You've got to do it all, and then you got to do it all, and then yeah. grace will save you. And that's not the context here. That is not the context that Nephi is teaching, because if you keep reading, he makes it very clear. For this end was the law given, wherefore the law hath become dead to us. We are made alive in Christ because of our faith, yet we keep the law because of the commandments. We talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ. We prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of our sins. Wherefore, we speak concerning the law that our children may know the deadness of the law. And they, by knowing the deadness of the law, may look forward unto that life which is in Christ and know for what end the law was given. Okay, This is clearly teaching that the grace of Christ... We're saved by the grace of Christ and not by checking the boxes of the law. Yes, that's and that's the point that Nephi's trying to drive home is we teach the law, we try to live the law, and at this time they had the law of Moses. They knew what those check boxes were, right? They knew what every little thing was. Now, this was a more pure form than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees created later on down the road, but it was still very much that original children of Israel Here's the law of Moses because you wouldn't, you couldn't understand the higher law, right? So here's the check boxes you've got to live by, hoping to point them to the higher law, right? But Nephi's teaching here that it's not checking those boxes mm-hmm. that's going to that's going to get you exaltation. The law exaltation. will not save you. Yes. It is dead. It is dead. It's just the law. Yes, it is. It is. What is the law doing? As we talked about, it's seeking to orient your heart in the right direction. 
And when your heart is oriented in the right direction to Christ, the grace of Christ can be fully applied to you at that point. And that's what provides salvation and exaltation. It's mm-hmm. not the law. So it's not so simple to say, oh, you're saved by grace after all you can do. No, what he's saying is, look, you can do everything you can do to check the boxes. But ultimately, if you're going to be saved, if you're going to receive salvation, it is by the grace of Jesus Christ that you are saved. Period. End of story. You can't check enough boxes to save yourself. And if you turn it around, what we learn is that it is important to keep the law because God established that law. 100%, yes. But keeping the law doesn't save you. So what does that mean? It means we have to become the type of person that lives in a manner consistent with the law, Mm -hmm. but not because it's the law. Mm -hmm. That's because that's just who we are. Yeah. That is who God would have us be. That's who Jesus Christ was, right? And he's, his atonement enables us to become that person. The law is just a measuring stick, mm-hmm. right? When we have the commandments and we're held accountable to them, right? That's just teaching us, hey, I'm not living consistently with who God would have me be. Now, if I'm, if, if I'm you know, maybe initially, yeah, I have to, I have to make changes in my life to check those boxes. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is not to be living with, with that clipboard and the checker. The end goal is to become someone who doesn't even worry about the law, doesn't even think about it. You just live consistent with the law because that's who you are. Yeah. It's not a burden. It's just it's just your lifestyle. You have a love It's for your it nature. Now. Yeah. It's just who you are. Well, and even in the temple, correct me if I'm wrong, but even in the temple, when they use the phrase now, after all you can do, saved by grace, after all you can do, it is when they are elaborating on the the law of the gospel and giving that law, but which laws have been received, which covenants have been made before that, the law of sacrifice and the law of obedience. And ultimately, I think the symbolism of them using the law of gospel that comes after that is we covenant to live the law of sacrifice and the law of mm-hmm. obedience. But what they're then trying to say is, you live that law, especially that law of obedience, as best you can because you love the Lord. You've made that covenant with him. You're going to do all that you can do to live that law. But ultimately, you're going to fall short in one way or another of being perfectly obedient to the Father. So then what comes in? Well, live the law of the gospel. Live the higher law, which is all about what? What we've been saying. Mm. Your heart, my heart is in the right place. I truly desire to be righteous and to live as perfectly as I can, but I won't. But guess what? Through the grace of Christ, he will cover all of those areas where you fall short, right? So it's exactly as we've been discussing. Law of sacrifice implemented. Law of obedience implemented. Okay, I'm not going to be perfect in in those things, but as I accept and live the law of the gospel, the higher law, where my heart is now changed, I do the best I can to live righteously, to do and align my will with the Lord. And wherever I fall short after that, the grace of Jesus Christ uh, will will cover those sins that I have remaining. You know, living the law for the law's sake, there is some value to it. Mm-hmm. It right, It's a learning tool. Yeah. Right. And 
you can grow in a telestial glory in that in that in that manner of living right there is there is some glory there is some benefit to be gained from it but the one of the main lessons that Christ brought to the Pharisees was if you want higher glory if you want terrestrial glory if you want to enter in closer to the presence of God it's more than that yeah it's, it's not about it's not about living the law for the law's sake it's about becoming someone who lives consistent with the law but from a place of love yeah in Matthew he's teaching the same thing think not I've come to destroy the law or the prophets have come not to destroy but to fulfill till heaven and earth pass not one jot or tittle shall uh, not one jot and one or one tittle shall no wise pass from the law till it all be fulfilled whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven but whosoever shall do and teach them the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven so jesus is clearly teaching i've come to fulfill the law but that doesn't mean the commandments are not important and do not have consequence if you do not learn to live the commandments the correct way if you do not become someone who lives their life from a place of pure love, a love of God and love for your neighbor, you will be called the least, and you will receive the least amount of glory that there is in the kingdom of heaven. But if you become someone who lives the law correctly, who lives the higher law that Jesus Christ taught, then you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And that's what he says here. Except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, he shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven, or that higher, right, be called great in the kingdom of heaven, or the higher glory of heaven. So if you're just checking the boxes like the Pharisees, not enough. It's not enough, right? Even though the law is dead or fulfilled, right? The law is fulfilled so that we can become people who can live the law correctly that is the purpose of grace that is the purpose of of jesus christ's sacrifice and that is what james teaches us so eloquently that even so faith if it hath not works is dead being alone a man may say thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show, show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou dost, doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? So clearly James is saying, faith is not just belief. Faith is being the kind of person that does good, that lives by the law, or produces good works, because of who he is. You shall know them by their fruits. Your faith should produce righteous fruits, righteous works. And then he teaches something very profound here about Abraham. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Ooh. That again that goes directly to the works of Abraham were 
the righteous desires of his heart. His desire was, I will live the commandments of the Father at all costs, whatever they may be. And even to the point in which the Father asks him to sacrifice Isaac, the son he had been waiting for, and the righteous desire of his heart said, okay, I will do it. Why? Because I love the law. God gave him a commandment, gave him the law, and Abraham said, okay, I'll do it, and and was willing to do it. His heart was willing to do whatever well, God asked of him to do. What's interesting about the case of Abraham and Isaac is that God gave him a commandment that he could not fulfill just by casually checking a box. Yeah, exactly right. He was not going to sacrifice his son just to say that he did it. Yep. Would not happen. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he still went to the altar to uh, to sacrifice Isaac showed that he was not someone who lived the law for the law's sake. Yeah. He's someone who lived the law because he loved God yeah. with all of his heart. And he knew that whatever the case may be, if the Lord commands it, commands it, it was going to be for his better. Yes. Yep. Even though it seemed completely inconsistent with the promises that he had received from God. Yep, that he had been given. But it was a test. And it was an instructive test. So as James says, Abraham was justified by his works. Not because he did a work, but because of the state of his heart. Yes. In doing that work. Yep. Or being correct. willing to do that work. He was justified by his works because of who he was mm-hmm. and what what that work represented about him. We'll hop over to Alma. Behold, this life is the time for man to prepare to meet God. Again, that's the plan. Progress while we're here. Mm-hmm. Get as much experience and spiritual progress as we can. Do not procrastinate the day of your repentance till the end. For after this day of life, which is given us to prepare for eternity, behold, if we do not improve our time while in this life, then cometh the night of darkness. And the same spirit which doth possess your bodies at the time that you go out of this life, the same spirit will have the power to possess your body in that eternal world. So again, that's just showing it's all about who you become. This Unfortunately, this strikes at the heart of deathbed confessional, right? You can't on your deathbed say, man, I'm really sorry for never changing my ways and never really aligning my heart and my will or surrendering, really, surrendering surrendering, surrendering my will to the Father, right? What Alma is ultimately teaching us here is repentance It is a lifestyle choice. It is something that has to be ingrained within you. It becomes part of who you are. You can't wait till the last day and develop a repentant heart, a repentant lifestyle. And that's ultimately what what brings about good works, what brings about righteous living, Mm -hmm. a repentant heart. That's what does it. That that, and a repentant heart, broken means, heart, and a contrite yes, spirit. Yes, it means I love the law, and so when I transgress or or sin against that law, I hate it. I feel bad about it. I want to repent of it and do better. I want to change. 
And so the repentant heart, the repentant path is ultimately something that takes time, energy, effort, and grace to cultivate. And you can't wait till the very end to 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 cultivate that lifestyle. Well, the deathbed confession is just repentance. Checking the box. Check. Yes, exactly. Not the way it works. Not the way it works. And, and James is pointing that out as well. Not the way it works. You have got to develop the heart within you that says, I love the laws, the commands of the Father. I love his way of being. I love his lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I want that lifestyle. I'm not capable of living it perfectly, but I'm going to continue to repent and continue to try to align m- my life to his will and surrender my personal desires and the natural man within me and sacrifice those at the altar to to do his way, to do his well, will. It's the parable of the ten virgins. Oh, 100%, yeah. It is, while you are alive, mm-hmm. we need to accumulate that oil yes. in our lamps. Yeah. We need to do the works necessary to grow spiritually. Mm-hmm. That comes through living the gospel of Jesus Christ by learning of his grace and applying it in our lives. And then, right, when we die, when we pass to the next life, we continue with that oil that we've accumulated. And if we have not accumulated any oil, then we will have no light in the next life. It's clearly symbolic of the the purpose of life and our, our purpose here on the earth. And, you know, to be fair... Since we're we're gonna hate on everybody here, if if Catholics kind of have this idea of deathbed confessional, I'm I'm gonna hate on everybody here. So stay with okay, me. Okay. The the inverse of that is cl- more closely aligned to what mainstream Christianity or or maybe what evangelicals believe was, hey, once you accept Christ, you're good. After that, you know it. it Hopefully your works reflect that, or they might say, well, if you truly accept Christ, then you'll, you'll live, you'll, you'll make righteous choices, but your choices really have nothing to do with it. It was ultimately that accepting of Christ that is going to save you. That's not it either. It's not deathbed confessional. It's not, I've accepted Christ and now I can just go live a normal life or, or be the natural man in the world. And it's not what a lot of members of our faith do where I accept Christ. I know he's the savior. I'm going to check the box and be able to, to, to lay down at night knowing I've checked all these boxes, but my heart isn't really in love with the law. My heart really doesn't love the law and the commands of God, but I, I feel bad if I don't, if I can't check the boxes. So I do it. It's none of those things. In his, what you just said, the image that came to my mind is the young rich man. You know, he came to Christ, he accepted Christ. Yeah. And then he came to Christ and said, I'm checking all the boxes. Yeah. I'm doing everything that the law said I should do. What, what, well, you know, what, what do I need to do to be saved? And here comes the test. And then, I mean, you know, and, and Christ told him, sell everything you have, give it to the poor. Okay, that was his Abrahamic test. Yes, correct. Okay. Because it was a test of what? Of his heart. Yes. Where is his heart? Really what Christ was saying to him, 
is, oh, you know, what, what, what do I lack to be saved? And Christ basically said, you have to become someone you're not. Yeah, that's right. Like the, great, you're checking all the boxes, mm-hmm. but you're not the person you need to be to actually be, be saved in the sense that receive all of the blessings, receive the greatest amount of glory that the Father has for you mm-hmm. when you return back to his presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for him, probably for most people, law of consecration <laughs> is is a test. Yes, for sure. Right? Yeah. And it's a, it's the truest and most, it's, it's the clearest indicator of of a man's heart. Mm-hmm is um, how attached are we to material possessions, to stature in the eyes of men, mm-hmm. um, to comfort yeah. in the world. Like how, how, how are we willing to sacrifice those things in service of others who do not have as much as we have? Are we willing to give up the things of this world that we've been blessed with to help those who have not received the same the same worldly blessings. Yeah. Um, but it's all about becoming. Yeah. And that's the process, the journey, right? That's what we've been focusing on. It's not this line in the sand, I've accepted Christ, now I'm saved by grace. It's not, as members of our faith have a tendency to do, I'm going to check all the boxes because we are so focused on living the law. I'm going law to accept well. Christ and also, and then check all the and boxes. And then check all the boxes. And it's not deathbed confessional. Sorry, I made all these bad choices, but as long as I confess before I die, I'm good. It's none of those three things. It is, I accept Christ. I'm going to live as righteously as I can and implement a lifestyle of repentance in my life. I'm going to develop that love of Christ and that love of the Father and the law. And then when I die, die knowing that the grace of Christ will cover my sins so that then I can go to the Father and say, I know what Christ has done for me. I know my sins are covered. Here's everything I was able to cultivate in my life. Here's all the righteous living, all the truth, all the light, all the everything I could do and and through the grace of Christ it will be magnified it will be enough you know and so it's none of those things and it's all of those things at the same time i mean it's it's a little bit of everything it's ultimately where your heart is and the lifestyle you have cultivated when you go to the father i think we should end on the last three verses of the book of mormon moroni 10:32 to 34 Come unto Christ and be perfected in him. Deny yourselves of all ungodliness. If ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient for you, that by his grace ye may be perfect in Christ. And if by the grace of God you are perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God. And again, if ye by the grace of God are perfect in Christ and deny not his power, then are ye sanctified in Christ by the grace of God through the shedding of the blood of Christ, 
which is in the covenant of the Father unto the remission of your sins, that ye may become holy without spot. And now I bid unto all farewell. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite. And I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. It's all about becoming, being perfected through Christ, in Christ, having access to the covenant of the Father unto the remission of our sins, that in the Father's eyes, but also in our own eyes, through redemption, through Christ, we can be holy without spot. That we don't view ourselves as something inferior to what we are, something less than a child of God. No, through Christ we present ourselves to the Father, knowing and understanding full well who we are and what inheritance is available to us. And that is why Moroni, who became that kind of person, he viewed the judgment seat as pleasing, as something beautiful, because he understood grace. He understood that even though our works are not sufficient, grace allows us to do all that we can do and present that offering to the Lord. And even though we know it's a, it's a small thing, the Lord accepts it. And then he can say, come into my presence, you true and faithful servant. He accepts our works, however small they may be. He accepts them as an acceptable offering, an acceptable sacrifice uh, at the altar. And that is the grace of Jesus Christ. I just want to testify that each of us who lived before this earth was are sons and daughters of a heavenly father. Each of us can and should qualify through the grace of Jesus Christ to inherit all that the father has and by necessity become as the father is. That is a process. That is a journey. It is not a one and done thing. And the grace of Christ is sufficient to allow that to happen. The scriptures are replete with examples of that. The disciples would bring Christ a small offering, the best they could find, and what would he do with it? What would he do with the loaves of bread? What would he do with the basket of fishes? He would make it enough for all in attendance. Magnify it. He magnified it. That is the ultimate grace that Christ offers. I know to some within the sound of our voice, it sounds hard to believe that you can become as Christ, the great Jehovah, the great Messiah is, and as his father, our father, the great Elohim is. It's hard to believe you can do that. But if you truly believe in the atonement and the grace of Jesus Christ, if you truly understand 
what he is capable of, you will come to realize and accept that he can take what little you can offer, magnify it, and make it enough to cover you, to perfect you, and to allow you to become exactly as he is and exactly as the Father is. That is a testament to me of just how great, just how loving, and just how infinite the atonement of Jesus Christ and his grace really is. It is it is not a limiting principle. It is limitless. And we should not have the perspective that the grace of Christ can only take us so far. The grace of Christ takes us back to the Father to be like Him and the Father, that we may all be one. That's my testimony of Him and His greatness. I know that He is the Savior and Redeemer and that, and that if we could just grab hold of a portion of how magnificent His atonement is, we would consistently and perpetually repent and align our lives to be like him in every way possible. In his name, amen. Amen.